0: Hello and welcome. This is Aspen Wake Media bringing you part three of our super series, eight-part series, on the birth of the English nation. And as always, I'm joined by the great Viking, Callum Paulson, otherwise known as Callum Wake, father of the wonderful Evelyn, uh, the latest addition to the Viking family. Or is she a Saxon family? We don't know. Anyway, how are you today, Callum? I'm good, thanks, chap. How are you? You're looking very groomed, considering this is Viking lockdown. Very similar to 870, I would say. Anyway, so um, for all you listeners, uh, we left the last tantalising episode with the Danes on the edge of victory. So the English nation obviously didn't exist at the time. Uh, The only remnants of the the peoples that became English uh, were... Uh, the the, the Saxons in in Somerset, effectively, who who were left uh, in a very much rearguard action, um, and surely they couldn't win, or could they? Anyway, you're not going to find that out for at least half an hour, because we're really bad like that. So we're going to go back now and today, because we're going to go and celebrate the life of somebody who, even in 2002, was voted the 14th greatest British person of all time. So that's not bad for a man that's been dead for 1100 and uh, 20-something years. (laughs) I'm supposed to be an accountant and I can't work it out. Anyway, it's a very long time. Um, So, um, yeah, I mean, it just shows the legacy of the man that uh, he he was voted 14th uh, in the all-time list. I have to say some of the people above him were... uh, uh, rather like Lady Lady Diana, uh, for instance, uh, Princess Diana was was above King Alfred. Anyway, so Alfred um, it, it, Alfred's name actually means uh, elf's council or wise elf, depending on your point of view. And uh, I'll do my best impersonation of how he would have been greeted at the time. He would have been Elfred, as opposed to Alfred, which of course is the modern English. Uh, version, so his name was A-E-L-F-R-A-E-D, um, and he was he was born, we don't, we don't know exactly when, he was born between 847 and 849 um, in the town of Wantage, um, and those of you who know anything about Aspen Wake will know that uh, Aspen Wake now has an office in Wantage, and this is a true story. Uh, the reason I wanted to have an office in Wantage was out of homage to the great man himself, Uh, So this is my way of, uh, I feel very much in my life that I have been rampaging through the Wessex kingdom. uh, And it was important to me to to set up some sort of base camp in Wantage where it all began. So Alfred was born in Wantage, so let's say 848 for the purposes of today. Um, His father was the king of Wessex, Aethelwulf, and his mother was uh, a lady called Osborough. Um and what's quite bizarre about this um is he was actually the youngest of six children, five boys, one girl. Um so the chances of him the chances of him ever becoming king uh were extremely remote. Um and it's quite often in history how often that happens, where someone who's completely um ill prepared uh and, and not ready to become the king actually becomes the king. But nonetheless, this is what happened. So um, so what do we know about uh, Alfred's childhood then, Callum?
1: Yeah, well, as you said, he was was born in the Royal Estate in Wantage. Um, I think it's worth mentioning, quickly reminding people that his his father was Egbert, who we talked about.
0: Grandfather? um, Yeah,
1: his grandfather was Egbert, who we talked about last week. Um, He he did quite a lot of bit of travelling when he was a young man. He... um, spent some time in Rome with uh, Pope Leo IV um, who thought very highly of him. Um, Apparently he was a very bright lad. Um, His mother used to hold sort of um, little um, competitions to see who could remember works of art the best out of him and his brothers and the other noblemen's. And they were women's sons back in the day, and he would pretty much always win. So he used to win um, books of poetry and stuff like yeah, this. Cool. So yeah, he did. He did a lot of he did a lot of learning in, in Rome under um, Pope Leo the Fourth. Um, he also travelled to Ireland when he was younger. He was very very interested, even from a young age, of um, you know of not not having an insular mindset. You know, he was mm. always uh, looking outward and um, knew the importance from a young age of of maintaining um, strong ties um and i think his, his time in rome as a young lad definitely had a massive impact on him he was um obviously a, a very very religious man all of his life and um that was one of his main goals um in britain and one of his driving forces in um during the viking invasion
0: yeah it's quite a interesting story which i think uh, has to be discredited um about the pope actually anointing him as the chosen king. Uh, and that story actually uh, passed over into the Vikings' um, uh, programme, which you and I both very much like, uh, as being a true scene. Um, I think the, the prospect of the youngest of six children actually having gotten to Rome when he was a very small child and the Pope preparing him for kingship is, is unlikely. But um, nonetheless, yeah. it's a story which has gone down um, in history. Uh, I was going to say legend, but it is really history. It is taught as being something that... That probably happened, so um what's quite interesting, Callum, about your points is quite a famous story about um his mother setting the whole family the challenge of remembering uh, a certain story, I think it was, and he recanted it. He won this book um I think it's true to say that he was unable to read and write for quite a long time. He was quite a slow starter, mm. so um it took him quite a long time before he sort of got it, and then once he got it, he was he was away,
1: yes. Yeah, so I think what what he was known for, what was noticeable, what he apparently had a great memory. So this is what really helped him. So he was actually quite slow in terms of, as you said, learning, um, you know, his writing and stuff. But apparently he had a great memory. And that's one of the reasons why he won that book of Saxon poems, because he could, once he could read, he could, you know, read anything and, re- and remember it almost word for word. And, and even before he could read and write, he would remember what people told him. So although um on paper he might not have been the most learned in terms of the knowledge he was acquiring he was actually you know assembling a lot of uh, information in a very short amount of time.
0: Yeah absolutely. Um and of course um it's interesting because um there are five statues of Alfred in the world today, three in uh, England in Winchester, Pusey and Wantage itself uh, and two in the United States, one notably at the King Alfred University, which I think might be in New York, actually. Um, uh, I, th- um, hmm? I don't know. If if I, if I know that there's one in Ohio, I think. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't really matter where it is, does it? Because, you know, who cares for today? Um, <laughs> who cares? Yeah. So um, I, think, um, I think what's interesting is if you look at the statue in Winchester in particular, which is a magnificent uh, representation uh, of, of a warrior king, I would say, um the reality is he probably didn't look anything like that he was actually fairly slight um by standards of a warrior um and also um not not a very healthy individual um and i think people believe that he suffered from crohn's crohn's disease is that uh, uh, what do you know about that callum
1: yeah yeah 100% so he was um yeah he suffered from health problems all of his life he would have been the most sickly out of all of his brothers Um, So while he was a standout in a lot of ways, in terms of what you would think of as your traditional, you know, big warrior Saxon king, um, he was the one that least fit that mould. As you said, modern historians pretty much all agree um, that he uh, suffered from Cromes. That's one of the reasons why he travelled to Ireland that I mentioned earlier, because, uh, you know, he went there for healing, basically. He thought that, you know, it it would go there, obviously... um, there's a lot of, like, sacred sites in Ireland and, and and stuff like that. He thought that he would go there and, and, and possibly heal himself of his problems, um, which obviously never happened, and um, much later on in life was the uh, cause of his early death.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think one of the things we tend to do in today's society is um, judge people of um, bygone years by our standards. And I think when you actually look at, you know, actually what happened uh, over um, Alfred's formative years... Of a situation where um his father goes to rome with him Aetherwolf, um having been quite nice to his eldest son um and comes back to have been displaced by his own son uh and then you have um as we say at that time england's of course in still in sort of five kingdoms or whatever uh yeah and uh, the kingdom which so the kingdom of wessex in itself uh ends up uh when when alfred's quite a young man sort of divided into two between two of his brothers and then it's only uh three of the brothers die uh at quite young age they get yeah. to a point where um i think it's um aethelbert uh is the king uh before um alfred and uh yep. they basically strike a bargain which was quite quite interesting um which was whoever survived would inherit all of the others uh wealth pretty much Mm. Um, it's quite interesting because uh alfred's brother actually had two children, both boys, who could reasonably have expected to uh, become the king upon the demise of their father uh and of course notably in um uh, i 'm not sure if it's the vikings or um or um uh, where um athelwolf is portray- portrayed as um a rather treacherous uh hard done by drunkard isn 't he um
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, in um in the Last Kingdom, yeah,
0: yeah, and, and in fact, in 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 real life, he does actually um in in real life uh, he does actually end up fighting against his own people uh, later on in his life, um, but I think you know the the fact is is that um, you know I think these were very difficult times, um, so uh, I think it was quite a smart decision the brothers uh, came to in terms of um, you mm. know what would happen, and so um. Now we have a situation. So, what, what do we know about Alfred's war prowess before he was the king? Do you know anything about that?
1: Um, I know that he, he he fought beside his brother Ethelred um, in a failed attempt to keep the great heathen army um, that was led by over the boneless. Our favorite man. Huh?
0: Our favorite
1: man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so um, Ethelred left, led an army up to Mercia to try and keep the great heathen army out they failed basically the um they lost they had to go home Ivo won. but yeah so he fought alongside Ethelred in that battle um would have i imagine would have been quite um crucial in terms of their their planning obviously he was a very cerebral man all of his life and he he was a real um you know he's, he's a really good example of that knowledge is power um mm. sort of saying obviously um he he Over the course of his lifetime, he defeated many powerful, physically powerful warriors with the use of his mind and superior tactics. But yeah, (laughs) early on in his life, he fought alongside Ethelred and in Mercia and and things like that. Several other skirmishes, um, um, Battle of Englefield, Um, where he fought in December 870, I think. Um, They also had a severe defeat at the siege of the Battle of Reading, Mm. and where they lost to Ivar's brother, Halfdan Ragnarsson. Hitzverk. Hitzverk. Mm. Yeah, so basically, he did have several battles and skirmishes before he was king. Uh, They lost pretty much all of them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've been doing a lot of reading about this. So there were actually nine battles between 870 and 871. uh, And I think the Saxons won two of them, perhaps. Uh, yeah. One was quite a good victory. I think just for um, for viewers, um, just a little bit of following in. So um, either the boneless, uh, of course, is, is portrayed uh, in a not very sympathetic light uh, in the Vikings. Um, and I think it's just worth uh, bringing out the history here, because I know the Vikings are, are probably even more in vogue uh, in terms of interest than the Saxons are. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, Ivor the Boneless was a son of uh, the great Ragnar Lothbrok, uh, as was Hafdan, uh, portrayed as Hitzvirk in the, in the Vikings. Uh, and also his brother was Abba. Uh, um, and uh, Bjorn Ironside were the half-brother of them, I believe. Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah,
0: so um, Ivor the Boneless was effectively... Um, in the early part of Alfred's warring life, uh, the battle leader of the Vikings. Um, And he sort of disappears out of history uh, by the time that Alfred becomes the king. Um, And so I think um, probably we can now sort of take everyone up to the point we got to in last week's show. So uh, effectively what's happened is the great, I think what they call the great heathen army, I think that was the reference, wasn't it? Yeah, the, great, great army, the, great, to, yeah. the great heathen army comes into england and for around 10 years uh, leading up to uh, the, the momentous breakout if you want to call it that and the, the pivotal moment has almost yep. uh, unbridled success they rampage all across england they take over so they're already in control of the north they control east anglia they control mercia uh and then ultimately, because of all these battles we've been talking about, uh, we end up in a situation in 878 uh, where even the West Saxons uh, are defeated. And uh, I think it might have even been Cannington or something like that. Uh, there was a- it was a battle in
1: Cannington. Obviously, Cannington Park mm. is the site of a Saxon and uh, Viking battle. Yeah.
0: there was a. There, anyway, there was a, uh, a pivotal battle, which I think pretty sure took place in Somerset. Um in mid-878, uh, which the Saxons lose. Um, and uh, everyone's slaughtered, but Alfred and his retainers manage to sneak away. Um, and they... So that leaves the Vikings basically in control of England. Um, yeah. But Alfred and his loyal retainers basically uh, retreat to the Somerset Marshes in a place called Athelney, which is... Uh, for those of you watching this, uh, probably about fifteen to twenty miles from where I'm doing this broadcast, uh, very sort of interesting place, um, sort of in the middle of nowhere. Um, there is a, 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 a memorial to Alfred Alfred Stone in Athony to this day. I do think it's rather sad. I can't imagine many countries where you've got such a famous man, where there is so such a poor uh, sort of acknowledgement of of the of the importance of that area um as I think I referred to last week there was a very famous jewel called alfred's jewel that was found um in athony yep. and uh, of course in those days um somerset was largely underwater and uh, <coughs> people used to travel around on coracles and it would have been very very difficult for people who didn't know the local terrain uh, to, to basically um find someone that was trying to hide, so it actually wasn 't very difficult for alfred to uh to evade the vikings and and live in in in, in you know in, in some degree of security uh so he yeah. ends up in Athelney and then of course um uh, i don't expect you uh, you were taught the, sc- the- the the story about the cakes at school were you callum yeah yeah no we- no we were we oh, were yeah, amazing.
1: Yeah, no, I'd I just like to say, Athelney was, was near where North Petherton is today. Mm. Yeah, so... Um, well, fairly. And the reason Fair. he, he fled there was because in, in January 878, the Danes made a sudden attack on Chippenham, which was a royal stronghold in which Alfred had been staying over the Christmas that That's year. That's the one, yeah. And so uh, most of the people there were killed. Luckily for Alfred, him and a very small band of people had managed to escape. And you know he managed to, with with the help of locals, made his way through the swamps, and then they found their way to Athelney, which is yeah n- near North Petherton today. Um, yeah, from from there he um, mounted a resistance campaign, and he managed to get word out to send all the local militias from around Somerset, Wiltshire, and Hampshire um, to to meet him there. And this is where obviously the the cake legend sort of uh, the story comes from.
0: Yeah, of course. As we've discussed before, um, the, the Saxons didn't actually have cakes because they they used to eat oaty things. So um, uh, I, I think it's it's probably more true to say that it's become a folklore story, which is sort of um, uh, more symbolic, shall we say, of the of what happened. So you've got this king allegedly in uh, the house of this peasant woman who goes out and simply asks him to look after. Uh, the cakes while they're being cooked, and of course, he, he fails to do so and they burn. And she then scolds him, uh, without realizing he's the king. That's the story, but it's again, it's it's quite extraordinary. I can remember, um, at school myself as a primary school kid, uh, being taught that probably when I was seven or something. Uh, um, yeah, you know, and it, it again, it's just, it, it, I think it's remarkable. Again, you know, when, when we consider that this is again a period. Uh, referred to as the Dark Ages, that you've got, um, you know, you've got stories which are so hugely part of Englishness today. Uh, yeah, you know, to a point where this guy from the the ninth century manages to be voted in the top twenty English people of all time many many years after his death, which is a an extraordinary uh, thing. So as Callum says, um the the system the Anglo Saxons had was what they called feuds. So um the militia were basically it was compulsory for all uh for all um subjects, I suppose that's a good word to call it. Uh all subjects had to join the local militia. And um of course when Alfred put out the word and said, Hey guys, I'm busting out of Athelney and uh we're gonna march out and um put the word out to the people, uh, he obviously, he obviously. of course we have no way of knowing, because it's such a long time ago, he had no idea of how successful the call to arms was going to be, um, mm. one imagines. Um, and of course, it must have been a heartwarming uh, sight for him. So when he actually turns up at the rendezvous point, and he finds pretty much...
1: Egbert Stone. Say again? Egbert Stone.
0: Where That's about? where he met. He
1: met at a place called Egbert Stone, which was obviously named after his grandfather. Do we, do we
0: know where that is? Um, east of Selwood, if you know where that is. No, not really. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm guessing it must be on the Somerset-Wiltshire border um, yeah. because of where the battle ends up being. So um, it must have been a very emotional moment for him because effectively, um, we're told ne- ne- nearly the whole population of Somerset is mobilised. Um And pretty much all of Wiltshire and uh I think what is what is uh the, the the writings of Gildas basically say all of the peoples of Hampshire to the west of a river, I think it is so if you said um, probably all the people in Hampshire sort of from Southampton, uh, which is called yeah. Hampton in those days, just out of interest, as uh, so Southampton mm. in Viking times was called Hampton um so you would have had probably people from Southampton, uh, Wilton, which was a very very big settlement in, in those days. Um, so basically, it, it, just to set the scene, you had um, the great Viking army, which at this point is now under the command of a guy that starts out as a great sea uh, sea war, war, warlord called Guthrum. over the bonus has disappeared. We don't quite know where. History doesn't tell us what happened to him. Um, So we end up with effectively uh, Somerset, Wiltshire and half of of Hampshire uh, up Mm -hmm. against the whole of the the Viking army just to set Mm -hmm. the scene. And one of the things I like to tease some of my friends about, I used to um, uh, go to Portsmouth quite a lot and get quite a lot of stick uh, because I was born in Bridgewater. Uh, And one of the things I used to say in in defence was if it wasn't for us Somerset people, you people wouldn't exist uh where, right. in fact they were all they would all be talking danish you know that's a that's a fact so um we have this pivotal battle which is the battle of eddington uh where as i say the uh the remaining free english uh although they're still not called that uh the free west saxons are probably better to say uh take on the great viking army and um i don't really know how to make any sense of this given uh, the as you say, the consecutive sequence of great losses, how they managed to turn it around. But now turn it around, they do, and at the back of Eddington... betting well, We know why, don't we? Do we? You weren't there. Because of, because of Uhtred of yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, Yes, I don't think Uhtred was actually there, old chap. But there we are. Um, no, that's, sorry. For anybody that watched The Last Kingdom, then obviously I'm
1: referring to him. But uh, obviously, as yeah. uh, nice it was, it is to think that Uhtred is was going around beheading all the Vikings. He was.
0: Fictitious. So anyway, um, the, the Battle of Eddington, which is in Wiltshire, was a tremendous victory, uh, a cataclysm, a, a, a defining, that's a better word, a defining... More
1: than defining. defining, the next level
0: up. I think, thank you, Karen. Um, <laughs> you, you can see this is unscripted. Um, so we have a defining uh, moment in English history, uh, total victory over the Vikings, um, and... As part of the uh, reparations of, of, of that, um, basically Alfred insists that Guthram himself is baptised, um, mm-hmm. and this is done in Wedmore, which is uh, one of my favourite places, which is only nine miles from my house. Somewhere we go for uh, lunch every Christmas at Boxing Day, uh, George Inn, which is a, obviously a client of Aspenwake, a wonderful place. And And... Yep. Um, Church, actually, is rather wonderful. Church is actually right next door to the George. And, um, Guthrum was baptised, and he was baptised as Athelstan. And, uh, what's quite interesting is it's genuinely believed, usually, the Vikings uh, it's interesting, this column. I don't know how much you know about this. I mean, I was reading about, um, uh, one particular uh, episode. I can't, I don't know enough about it to say any more than that, which was, um, somewhere around 877, I think it was. So this is during the sort of grim days of the Saxons where they're losing. Uh, where At one moment, uh, I think that following a battle, they exchanged hostages. Uh, I think it might have been Wareham, actually. I think it might have been. Um, So the Saxons and the Vikings exchanged hostages and the Saxons made the Vikings swear an oath on their blood... Is it blood rings? Is that what they're called? Or something rings. Anyway, war rings or something. Um... And this is supposed to be a sacrilegious oath because although they're pagans, you know, they're basically swe- swearing on Thor's life, you know, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. <laughs> and basically two days later they slaughtered all the hostages, uh, which just goes to show how seriously the Vikings took their oath. Um, yeah. So yeah. anyway, you know, so one needs to to. to but the fact is that Guthrum um, might have been expected to do to very cynically um, be, be be baptized as Athelstan, but in fact he took it very seriously and it's generally considered that he lived a reasonably Christian life. Um, He retreated to lands in East Anglia, which were uh, given to him as as a very sensible settlement. And, of course, um, the Danelaw was born as a result of that uh, battle, wasn't it, Callum?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, so, yeah, as you said, after after his baptism, when Guthrum became Athelstan, he became king of East Anglia. This was um, obviously a good strategic move for alfred as well because basically guthrum could uh, look after the, the east coast for him against um, any other invading forces um but Allah who was a monk who was also the, the same monk that baptized guthrum alla ri- wrote that um athelstan slash guthrum was was never a problem to the people of wessex again yeah oh. so as you said he obviously took his his oath seriously and settled down and was a good boy
0: yeah yeah uh So yeah interesting so um yes we basically end up in a situation um as a result of this 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 the battle of eddington and the treaty that came out of it which was the treaty of wedmore i think actually and one of the things and one of the things that um gives me immense pleasure um you know i'm very callum and i are both very proud to come from somerset we i think we both consider ourselves to be somerset vikings actually um I mean, actually, you know, we, we would be, uh, I think if we were to go back in time, I think Alfred himself, uh, and probably Ragnar Lofbrook, actually, would be very proud of us, because um, we we probably represent the best of a fusion between a Saxon and a Viking, don't you think?
1: I'd I'd like, always working towards it, chat, always working towards
0: it. Well, no, I think, you know, I think if, if you look at, I mean, you look like the uh, definitive Viking, don't you? And I... I, I look uh, increasingly like some aged uh war- I don't know whether I look like I'm a Saxon warlord or a Viking warlord. What do you think, Drew? A mix of both. Mix of both, oh, I thought <laughs> <sure>. Yeah. <clears throat> I do get teased for going on holiday and looking like a German, but uh we can't you know, we can't go there because of course war sprung technique wasn't invented in the dark ages, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> But anyway, so we have, we, we have a situation where, um, effectively, there was, there was peace uh, for, for quite some time, uh, maybe 20 years um, after Eddington, and effectively, it was very civilised, and effectively what happened was uh, Alfred said, right, you, you Viking chaps, you go and push yourselves over there, uh, and you can be in charge of, effectively, um, the Midlands, East Anglia and the North. Uh, yeah, and everything else will be, will be will be ours, uh, and so the Viking bit was referred to as the Dane Law, and I suppose effect effectively their, uh, their 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 capital in England uh, was was York, wasn't it? Yeah, and of course, um, tell us a little bit when you were a little boy. I don't know how to re- remind me how old you were. Of course, we went to York, and um, you had a wonderful time in the Viking Museum. I remember. Uh, we sat on this little train, uh, which which frightened your brother to death, if I remember rightly, for some reason. But I can't think. Of... Do you remember that?
1: Yeah, it was probably a bit too heathen for Sam. But um, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, York was called Yorvik by the Vikings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think t- to this day, uh, in my opinion, it's it's one of the best, most interesting cities in uh, in Britain.
0: It is quite interesting how, even to this day, people are very different, I think. Uh, Northern people have quite different uh, physical appearance and uh, quite different mannerisms, I would suggest, to people in the South. Uh, so that's, that's quite interesting. So um, we have a situation where, uh, as I said, there's relative peace and, effectively, England is divided into two. And in the early part of uh, Alfred's reign, uh, he's still by no means... uh, The the Anglo-Saxons themselves have no um, English identity or Mm. uh, there's no feeling of Englishness whatsoever. They are still uh, quite tribal. Um, I think there was a coin cut somewhere around 880 that refers to him as Rex Anglorum or something like that. Um, Okay which is, I think it means King of the Angles or something like that. Alfred was never in his lifetime referred to as King of the English. So I do find it quite interesting that in a number of documentaries uh, that are shown these days, uh, they quite often say that he was, you know, so they would refer to him and say he was the first King of English. Uh, And in my opinion, that's historically inaccurate. And I think there's no doubt in my opinion that the first King of English was in fact Alfred's grandson, um, Athelstan, Who uh, you, you and I are also going to do a whole dedicated feature on Athelstan because he was, uh, you could argue, an even greater king than Alfred. But there, let's let's yeah, leave. Sure. leave, leave, leave. I, I think what's important
1: to mention. Sorry, sorry if I cut you off there, Pops. I, I think what's important to mention is that there was sort of like a domino effect that was started by Egbert. Um, so Egbert had a vision. He was a very outward thinking man. It was a very intelligent man now this was obviously something that ran in the family um Ethelwald, egbert's son didn't really seem to have many of these characteristics but it definitely skipped a generation and went into alfred and alfred was sort of like egbert but the next level so he was even more intelligent even more strategic even more outward thinking thinking even more of england as a whole rather than just sort of petty squabbles between kingdoms etc really looked at the bigger picture he now, and, and then Alfred obviously passed this on to his son Edward the Elder, um, who increased it even more, and then Edward the Elder's son, um, King Athelstan, made it complete.
0: Complete. That's a good word, isn't it?
1: I, I think it's um, it's it's very um, important to mention that during that those 20, 20 odd years of peace that you mentioned after um, Guthrum was made Athelstan and and. Uh, Sort of sent to East Anglia to be a good little boy. Um, You know, Alfred didn't take this as a as a as a a good time to put his feet up. He made massive reform in England at the time.
0: Mm.
1: He um, he thought that everything that happened during the Viking age was um, sorry during the Viking invasion was a bit of a shambles. Um, I think that as a proud man, he was maybe even embarrassed at how easily fortifications were taken by men with no siege equipment blah 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 so he made massive military and educational reforms um there's um texts that show that um because alfred cared so greatly about um knowledge um and held such a high standard of of intelligence he was really really bothered by how badly um the danish raids had an effect on education in england um So, you know, there was so much slaughter going around, so many texts were burnt in the monasteries that the the Vikings raided. Um, There were uh, hardly any monks in England anymore that could even read Latin at one stage, um, let alone translate Latin to English, which is what Alfred expected. So he made massive educational reform, um, started putting in uh, commonplace through a court system, that all noble children would have to, you know, be taught English and Latin, um, you know, t- told scriptures. Massive mi- military reform, um, increased emphasis on, you know, military training, and he made burrs every twenty miles. He made yeah. burrs. Explain
0: what a burr means.
1: A burr is basically like a fort a fortified position. So it could be a town. It could be a place that they built themselves. Um, but it was very important for him to have every 20 miles all throughout the country pretty much he would have birds which were as I said fortified by these newly trained um, re-emphasized you know military basically
0: I don't that's, that's something we we probably ought to talk about as um, obviously the main the main um, reason we're doing these shows is is to educate people and I think it's been quite um, heartwarming actually uh, that people do want to learn and they enjoy uh learning about this stuff um t- so it's quite important to anyone who feels remotely english so i think um it's probably worth talking a bit about stuff that you and i like you know we one of the things we like in uh, the last kingdom and the vikings is is the battle scenes um and i think you know to some extent uh you know one was brought up to this uh notion of the vikings being this fearsome terrifying uh bunch of people that were almost sort of animals and fought with no discipline and whatever so I think it's quite interesting to compare uh, the different ways of fighting and if I tell you to start with how I think they fought and then you can correct me because I'm sure no. you you certainly would know more about the Viking side than I would um, the Anglo-Saxons fought in a very um, disciplined way I would say uh, so as a generalisation Uh, It's quite interesting, actually, because, um, you know, again, uh, we we both love uh, Sharp, for instance, uh, which, of course, is uh, the chronicle of uh, a guy that comes up from the ranks to become a very senior officer in the Napoleonic Wars. And if you think about um, uh, one of the reasons why we were so effective uh, as a fighting unit uh, throughout history, but notably under Wellington's command is how often do you hear form square form square so we 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 were very disciplined people that retreated into Form square and of course um the square you could argue sort of has its birth in the shield wall um as a concept and of course the saxons when they were fighting and obviously mostly they were fighting the vikings for uh, most of their time prior to the norman conquest is whenever there was a battle, the, the Saxons' uh, instinct would always be at the very earliest opportunity uh, to form a shield war, which basically meant uh, fighting in a very disciplined team fashion, uh, so very much not individuals... You know, there weren't individual Saxons rampaging across the battlefield uh, in single combat. That wasn't the way they liked to do things. Whereas I, I believe the Vikings were much more skirmishy, you know, more skirmishing-type fighters, Um is that, is that true?
1: Well, I think it, it depends on the size of the army. So uh, for, um, until the great heathen army st- sort of started conquering majority of England, um, they used to often use you know, like hit-and-run tactics. Vikings would, would target you know, places that had lots of you know, gold and, and things of worth, and they would raid them, sack them, and then leave before a large army could come in. I think you know, this was very different, though, by the time you know, of, of the great heathen army. Um, they would have had very, very similar uh, battle tactics the Vikings and the Saxons, almost identical um, in the majority of ways. And I would actually argue that uh, at the start, the Vikings were better militaristically. I think that the Saxons had almost become a little bit complacent. You know, they had good ties with Rome. They had good ties with the Franks. um, So they weren't really worried about many outside forces, they were used to their little, um, you know, squabbles between the kingdoms, Um, and I think to have such a a massive force of very determined, um, you know, equally physical um, people coming in that, uh, you know, they they were more, the Vikings were more about that warrior lifestyle, whereas the people in England, you know, are becoming, you know, the Saxons, since they've become Christian especially, have become, you know, increasingly more interested in education, etc., which is obviously fantastic, but you can't forget about the physical aspect of things because what happens is you get these great big heathens coming in and unfortunately, um, you know, how much Latin you know isn't going to help you very much when a six-foot-five Dane wants to Mm -hmm. put an axe in you. Um, So I think this is why um, Alfred put such a big emphasis on military reform because obviously he realised this um, and thought, you know, as a, as a proud man, thought, you know, us Saxons, you know, are just as have got su- just as good warrior lineage as the Vikings. We really need to bring this back into our culture. Um, and I think, you know, it's really there's a lot of evidence to show why that their Vikings were better warriors, at least at the start. But the fact that they took towns like Canterbury um, and stuff pretty much easily. You know, these were like great big fortified places. And it seems like the Vikings just sort of like waltzed in. <laughs> Actually, quite embarrassing for the Saxons of the time that they weren't um, able to defend it. Um, yeah, quite similar. That they both would have used shield walls, similar weapons. Vi- Vikings used more axes. Um, axes weren't so much an Anglo-Saxon thing. They used more spears and, and swords. But apart from the fact that Vikings used axes more, they would have had very similar battle tactics.
0: Okay. I mean again one of the things I think you know sometimes I think one tends to um uh take things for granted and assume people know things and it's obvious. So one of the things uh, so I think that's not true. So just for the state of say saying it um so English was a, England was a, a Roman Catholic nation. Uh so Alfred was essentially a Catholic. Um his allegiance was to the pope as I say we had this uh story about uh, Pope Leo actually loving the little boy and uh, anointing him as the future king. Uh, So, uh, in those days, it was very traditional. Uh, Prayers would have been in Latin uh, and and, and, and books, because the only learned people really were monks, so they would have written in Latin. And, of course, I think what's very interesting is, I I hadn't really thought about this before, when you go forward into... um, Uh, Sort of the 16th century, shall we say, and you've got people like the Spanish Inquisition and the the terrible um, conflict between Protestants and Catholics uh, all over Europe, you know, particularly if you think about uh, Bloody Mary, as she's called, uh, burning uh, Protestants at the stake, uh, to some extent then Queen Elizabeth doing the opposite back. it was considered um, very heret- heret- her- heretical. That's not a good word. Heretical uh, for uh, for knowledge to be imparted in anything other than Latin, um, and, and and certainly you know when people like uh, Wycliffe and Caxton tried to produce um, information and knowledge in English, it was considered to be uh, quite a, an offensive thing to do. So instead of sitting there thinking it was a good thing, that you know, Bob in the field, uh, Mr <laughs> Peas- Mr Peasant could 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 read something. Um the Privilege didn't like that. So I think it's amazingly um far sighted of Alfred that he should have pioneered uh I suppose knowledge for all it might be way yeah. of putting it, you know? So he 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 basically insisted that um books were translated, uh, which of course would have been uh old English at the time. I don't know how Quite how they would have would have referred to it themselves, and whether they actually realised that um, they were writing in Old English. I, 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 mean, it's quite, I don't know this. I've never actually found out. Um, it'd be interesting to see what someone would say. What what language uh, Alfred would have said he was speaking? Yeah. Do you, know, you have hmm. any, any view on that? No, I don't really. I um, I guess.
1: I don't know. Maybe he would have said that he was speaking Germanic. I'm, I'm not really sure.
0: It's quite an interesting question, isn't it? Um, it is a very
1: interesting question. Yeah, because obviously, all all historical mention of it just refers to it as English or Old English. Literally, that's all they say, isn't it?
0: Yeah, but but obviously, as they were, there was no such thing as English. Then they, they clearly couldn't have been speaking English because they didn't know they were English. There we are. That's a that's a great one, isn't I, it? I think, yeah, I, I think that it's. Um,
1: Worth mentioning what you were saying about how forward-sighted it was of Alfred to start thinking, you know, about educating, you know, um, just the common free peoples as well as noblemen. I think, for me, one of the things I like most about Alfred is... um, how much of a common sense person he was. So he wasn't like um, it was. He wasn't like it is today. He wasn't like okay, every child has to go to school and go to education. He was very much common sense based. So if by the time a child was sort of six, seven years old, they were showing you know um, talent when in terms of intelligence um, in any way, then they would be sent to be educated. Um, on the other hand, if that lad had a brother who was, you know, big and strong, but not so gifted in that respect, he would be put through more military training or put to work on the farm. And I think, I think that's, um, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, play to our strengths, you know, don't don't force, don't force a big lad that should be a farmer (laughs) or a warrior to try and become a scholar and don't try and force a scholar to become a warrior, you know, play to our strengths.
0: Yes. So, um, um, i just want to make sure that when we, we we finish our hour today that we we cover all the things that are quite important so one of the things uh, i want to talk about is um alfred is often um regarded as being the uh founder of the british navy or the english navy and of course um probably from from the late 16th century onward apart from uh, probably a period of 20 to 50 years with the dutch uh, were amazed, yeah. amazingly successful on the seas. Uh, Britain pretty much did rule the waves. Hence the the wisdom of "Rule Britannia." Britannia rules the waves. Um, so Alfred is often credited with being the man that basically uh, started that process, uh, which is actually historically inaccurate because um, uh, the previous kings before him, probably probably your favourite Egbert. Um, if it would be one, uh, had already uh, seen the sense in having uh, some degree of fleet. And I think it's worth pointing out for uh, listeners and viewers um, who probably would be quite... uh, I think if you ask most people uh, to describe or draw the sort of vessel that a Viking uh, would travel in, I think people would have a pretty good um, idea of that, you know, the Viking longship uh sort of very long and narrow probably moved quite low in the water quite fast uh mm-hmm. slightly terrifying because they made the front look as terrifying as they could the the saxon boats by contrast were much bigger uh, and much heavier made of much more solid wood uh, so would have would have been um probably much more recognizable in sort of um medieval times as as a vessel so that that was that was the predominant difference between a saxon boat and a viking boat yeah. but what's quite interesting in those days is they didn't actually fight um in a in a sea way so how they actually fought was so if we just imagine now for instance five big saxon vessels sailing up the thames and they come across uh, seven viking longships what they actually did was they came alongside and then and then basically they had a land battle at sea. That's what yeah they thinking. jumped in the
1: ships yeah
0: yeah so they did it wasn't you know it wasn't like um you know boom boom and uh, and all this huh. it, it was it was a it I was think, a means to construct a land battle on sea effectively
1: yeah I don't know um i think I don't know if this was leftovers from um sort of the Romans way of things. We know that obviously the, the Saxons were very influenced by by Romans in lots of ways, obviously them learning Latin being a massive one, and Christianity. But um that's the same way that Rome Rome used to go to war at sea as well. They had like big ramps that they Absolutely. would lower onto ships. Um it, what's interesting to note, without going too off topic, is if you go back to about three thousand years ago, um the Greeks actually had far more advanced naval combat. They would they would have um, you know jars of oil
0: yeah, burning um, and, oil yeah
1: and stuff and they would they would shoot flaming o- um, arrows onto the sails and they would often you know just set alight some ships that were you know um mm. 50 feet away or something um you know very effective they also had um um you know oil that they would burn on the water and set fire to ships that way but anyway i digress um <laughs> what's what's a uh, really interesting what you were saying about the saxon ships was that along with Alfred's military reform on land, he did actually change the styling of Saxon ships. So he actually adop- he did adopt the, the more Viking style um, of, of they're called long ships or dragon ships, mm. dragon boats. Dragon boats or long ships, they usually refer to. As you said, they usually had like a, a big statue of a dragon on the front. What they were really good at, Viking ships, was, and this, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about them you know, being known for their, for their hit-and-run tactics early on, You know, the the ships completely mirror that. They were sort of hit-and-run ships that were extremely fast. At the the time, they may have been the fastest ships in the world. Um, I think that's that's probably true. I don't think there would have been any ships in Asia or anything faster. They're extremely fast, very long and narrow. What um, Alfred did was he made ships that were basically the same as the Viking longboats, but twice the size. So there's scriptures, um, there's remains of scriptures nowadays that see him putting to work... um, essentially viking longships saxon longships but viking longships that um are exactly the same as the viking design but he ordered them to be made with 100 oars um which is really quite massive so obviously 50 oars aside whereas most viking um longships that are, are dug up today only have 25 oars aside so that really you know so it would have been quite intimidating yeah. if you were a viking sailing down the thames and then you saw a ship the same as yours but twice the size with 100-plus um, men on it. it, would have been quite an intimidating thing to see. Obviously, this was exactly
0: Alfred's plan. A bit like the Battle of Britain of its kind, but on the sea, of yeah. course. Yeah, uh, I like that, yeah. Another another thing, um, as we, we're getting near the end of today's show, wanted um, to, because it's obviously so important, so London, for instance, um, London, uh, at the start of Alfred's reign, uh, was controlled by the Vikings, um, and... Uh, It was only, I think, three or four years after uh, the Battle of Eddington that effectively the Vikings moved out of London and London resumed to be under the control of uh, the Saxons. But even then, if you go out uh, into greater London, particularly to the north, uh, that area was pretty lawless, uh, really right up for another 300 years or so. Um, So I think that's worth pointing out. I think probably... um, where we ought to end today is is looking at um, alfred's family so uh alfred's wife was uh, a, a rather formidable uh, very pious lady called ailswith um who's uh played uh, beautifully by marjorie butterworth in um uh, the last kingdom uh, i think she's absolutely fantastic great performance um so, so it's very very sort of earnest uh loving i think she's no doubt she loved uh loved alfred um yeah perhaps sometimes um like a lot of things perhaps some of her feelings and views were a bit misplaced and of course um they they had several several children i think it was four but uh two two in particular have gone down in legends and we're going to do um com- dedicated shows to each of these people because i believe um, e- e- each each of them well sorry there's uh so I, 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 I tell a lie actually, that's not quite right. So we're gonna have a we're gonna have a, a dedicated show on uh Alfred's daughter, um uh, Ethel Flood, uh who's gone down in history as referred to as the Lady of the Mercians, who I think um could be considered to be the greatest English woman of all time. And I think it's um very sad actually, if that's the right word to use. Um so if you take um, the fact it's quite remarkable that Alfred, who lived in between 847 and 899, should have made it into the top 20 Great Britons, um, it's probably even more remarkable that a lady that lived um, around 40 AD in in Boudica or Bodicea, depending on how you were brought up, um, should have her own statue in London and and, again, be someone who most people know who she is, you know? Um, and when you consider really you know what what did Boudicca actually do uh she defied the romans um her her children got raped and defiled her her husband was killed uh and she then uh managed to lose a battle despite having overwhelming uh supremacy of odds and and strategic position uh but nonetheless it's gone down in history as this sort of magnificent warrior queen that stood there against the uh, invading romans and then you've mm. got then you've got Ethel, ethelfled on the other hand who um who was uh, brilliant intelligent and brave and successful uh and nobody knows who she is um, just yeah. just just now i think one of the things that's been uh, i've talked about this last week one of the things that's been very heartwarming wonderful in my lifetime has been uh i think i think Englishness is is on the rise so I think when I was uh when I was brought up probably even to the point of uh getting to about you know nine certainly the 80s um I think you know I was brought up to be told I was British you know I was a British person I wasn't an English person and I think it's taken um probably you know I I don't mean this to be offensive because obviously I'm Cullum and I are uh, incredibly um, uh, British, shall we say. We're not, by blood, we are not English at all. No, th- pro-Britain. Yeah. I, think, I think it took uh, the extreme tribalism and nationalism of the other countries in Britain, uh, particularly the Scottish and the Welsh, um, who I think, you know, it, it, I don't think this is a uh, an overreaction to say this. I mean... I've actually I've actually listened to uh, interviews with some of the great Welsh players of the 70s and 80s, and some of the stories they now admit uh, are important. They actually admitted that if they saw an English head in a rugby match, for instance, on the floor, they would stamp on it. Um, it was absolutely disgraceful. You know, they actually whipped themselves into this sort of fury of hatred. Um, and I think that you know what's happened in our lifetime is it, that 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 feeling of Englishness that was originally born um, through Alfred's vision has 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 come to a fore, and I think mm. now the English race has said no, we've had enough of this, um, you know, and I think that's led to Brexit, for instance, um, a much more defining. And I can certainly anybody anybody who uh, supports England at rugby, I would. Urge you to go to Twickenham. It is the most patriotic experience you could ever have. I openly admit to uh, openly crying on the terraces at Twickenham because the whole, the whole um, experience of all the singing before the match and the singing of Jerusalem and Royal Britannia and all that, and and uh, the coming together of uh, English people in a way that they never would have done before. And of mm. course, we owe we owe all this to to Alfred in many respects, um, and I think you know, I think it, 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 I think it's um, it, it's terribly sad. In fact, it's more than sad that uh, I mean, we I, I still think you know, I'm, I'm I'm sure there are many politically correct and woke people who are going to laugh at me when I say this, but I, I I I wouldn't want to be anybody else other than than English British uh, myself. I consider. I still think that pound for pound um, and per capita, we are the greatest country in the world, and I'm proud to say that. And I don't care whether people think that makes me an an imperialist or something. It's not meant at all. It's just I just think we are uh, a great nation of people who um, have punched above our weight all through uh, history. And I think
1: yeah, I I completely agree. I I think um, what makes Britain such an interesting place is the influx of so many uh, um, influences and I've, I've touched on this several times in, in the past. I just think that the combination of, of uh, you know, the ancient Britain culture, you know, mixed with the Roman influence mixed with the Anglo-Saxon influence mixed with the Viking influence, um, you know, all, all, all the ties, as I said, with, with Rome, you know, going forward, you know, just, just that constant emphasis on, on, um, on always trying to be the best you can be, you know? And as I said, uh, it's quite funny because I think some some uh, countries maybe sometimes in a slightly negative light might try and uh, sort of...
0: Do you mean Belgium?
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but the is almost like um, empirical or something like that. And yeah, of course, we did have one of the most successful empires in history. But, but you've got to remember, for such a small country, I mean, pound for pound, Um, I'm very, very proud of what Britain's accomplished throughout history. And I'm very, very proud and very interested in all the different influences. I think one of the things that makes Britain great is it's not just, you know, one small group of people, you know, that have, as I said, it's this influx. And I think every single person that's contributed to England, whether it is the ancient Britons, you know, the Celts, the Romans, the Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings, they're all so fascinating and so awe-inspiring in their own right and we all lay claim to all of those five, six different cultures. Um, and I think that's that's fascinating. Um,
0: and I'm very proud
1: to be connected to all of those, the different people, you know?
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that, that I think is true of Alfred's reign is that he, he, he genuinely didn't um, see the Vikings um, as... He obviously saw them as the enemy insofar as, you know, he had to vanquish them, but he... He actually wanted to see, as, as in fact Ragnar Lofbrook did, uh, he wanted to see uh, the Vikings and the Saxons coexisting, uh, mm. which of course they uh, eventually did to great success. So mm. I think I think um, that was a very interesting show. I think it's just worth reflecting. Um, so Alfred the Great uh, was king for uh, 20, 23 years or so. He was 21 when he died. Uh, 50, sorry, 51 when he died. <laughs> Um, in eight nine nine, um, it, he died on the
1: twenty sixth of October. Its name,
0: yeah, it's eight nine nine, because of his Crohn's disease. That's what it, that's what that's what they think. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I think it's um it's very interesting. I, I I I I wonder if you you know this. Um, so Alfred is actually the only um, the only king, um, who was born in England. Uh, who was actually called the Great. Um, mm. there is actually another king uh who was called the great so i wonder if you know the answer to that
1: yeah C- canute the great danish ah. king well english king uh english well
0: english king but he
1: was a he was born a dane but he was a king of
0: england uh, and but yeah was, uh, yeah
1: canute the great
0: yeah i must admit i'm gonna to admit to you i didn't know that until about two weeks ago uh Did you not? no i didn't know um so i know i didn't realize that canute was called canute the great and of course um You know, he's sort of infamous in uh, folklore for um, trying to command the sea, which, of course, is uh, complete rubbish, uh, especially as he was quite a great man, really. Uh, So, yes, Alfred's uh, rule was defining, and uh, he he effectively staved off defeat against the Vikings, and as a result of uh, his initiative, his intelligence, and his administration, uh, he set the scene... uh, and I suppose one of the things you'd have to say, the gene pool was very, very strong. Uh, so, Egbert was a fantastic uh, ruler. Alfred was an even greater ruler. Uh, Edward, the elder suspect. Uh, his daughter, right off, a chip off the old block. Grandson, yeah. at least as good. Uh, and maybe, you know, sometimes sometimes it's easier to, to finish off a task than it is to start it, isn't it? Uh So, you know, maybe I think Alfred deserves his place in history for being the person who made being English possible, I would suggest. Uh, And he paved the way for others to create the great country that is today England. And on that note, I'm going to say thank you to Callum for his usual excellent insight. Um, so So next week we're talking about the Lady of the Mercians, Callum. So mm-hmm. that's going to be really interesting. Uh, so this is—I think we're going to start a campaign, bring back Ethelfled uh, and, and get her taught in yeah, the English. Yeah, that's good, cause, isn't it? Because she deserves to be there, having her place in the sun. Let's try and get her a statue. Yeah, we want to. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, well, I'll make a statue for her. Um, and anyway, <laughs> for, 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 I hope that uh, those of you that have watched or listened to us today have really enjoyed the show. And that uh, we've, we've, we've found it interesting, educational and enlightening. Um, and uh, we welcome you back in a week's time for part four of Birth the English Nation, which is a dedicated feature on King Alfred the Great's daughter, Ethelfled, Lady of the Mercians. Until that time, we play out with our stirring saxon music. Thanks a lot. Bye.